First Thessalonians five, verse beginning in verse sixteen. And I'd like for us to read uh, through the end of the chapter, indeed through the end of the book. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Frequently in Paul's letters... um, He comes to the end of his letters, and suddenly uh, they become kind of a a rapid-fire series of things that he says. And and I don't, you know, I often wonder. By the way, you know that Paul didn't literally write most of his letters. He had what was called an amanuensis. He had someone that would dict. He would dictate Timothy and Silas and others that would that would write down what he said. Uh, For instance, if, if you, I think it's Galatians. If you look at the end of Galatians. Um, uh, yes, thank you, Carol. Six eleven. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who make a good showing. He goes on. So frequently, what he would do is at the end of his letters, he would write his own conclusion. And in Galatians, he says, see with what large letters I write. One of the theories which I think makes most sense is that at some point Paul contracted malaria. We do know that in the Lycus River Valley, there was during the 60s, the late 50s, early 60s, there was a a large, historically, there was a large malaria outbreak. And and one of the side effects, you guys would know this uh, better than anyone in Africa, uh, is it's not treated properly, it affects your eyesight. Uh, I think his thorn in the flesh was, in fact, that he had very, very poor eyesight. And that's why people would, he would have people dictate um, for him. And I think this is an indication. See with what large letters. You know, see, he had the big chief notebook with the crayon. You know, he had to write real big so you could see. But, but it seems like, oh, and by the way, they didn't have, you know, obviously they didn't have a word processor. They, had, they would have, uh, in all likelihood, a, a papyrus roll, a papyrus roll. This was pressed reeds that were pressed together, and so they were writing on this reed. So they had a, a somewhat limited space with which to write. And I always get the impression that, that, that you know, pa- Paul is, is, is very expressive, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he starts on one path, and then he thinks of something else, and he, he takes a, a, a rabbit trail and then comes back. And I always, I always get the impression that, he, that Timothy said, Paul, we're getting to the end of the scroll here. Uh, we don't have much room left. And he, got, and he got to the very end, and now he just has to write in, you know, Again, verse 16, you know, pray without ceasing, give thanks, because he's, he's, right, he's getting to the end of the papyrus. That, that, that's maybe what was going on here. Maybe he was running out of time. Maybe they had to get somewhere. But, but it, it, it just seems to be very frequent with Paul that at the very letter, he just seems like he throws in these rapid-fire you know, conclusions to his letters. And then that's exactly what we see here. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks. Um, 
And so it's, sometimes it's hard to, to really look at this and say, what was, is there a structure to this? And, and we, you need to be, we need to be careful that we don't impose a structure that maybe is not there. Maybe, in fact, he's just rattling off, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just some important thoughts that he has that he wants to make sure he gets in. So I, I, as I approached the text today, I, I wanted to be cautious that I didn't superimpose on it a structure that maybe Paul never intended. But on the other hand, there may be something more there than just random, rapid-fire exhortations. Um, so, um, one more thing. Uh, keep your marker here and turn to 1 John chapter 5. Uh, this is, an important, I think, an important introduction for us. Um, 1 John, it's the epistle near the end of your New Testament, not the Gospel of John. 1 John. Begin in verse 2. By this we know that we, we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now, now his commandments here are, are, are he, probably not uh, the Ten Commandments. It, it's not following the law. It's not, uh, you know, uh, legalistically trying to live up to the Ten Commandments. But probably the precepts of the Word of God is probably what John has in mind here. He says, uh, whoever loves the Father, whoever has been born of him, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his word, I guess you could, you could probably say, for this is the love of God that we keep his word and his word or his commandments are not burdensome. And oftentimes we're hesitant uh, in, in this age of this new covenant age to talk about commandments, to talk about, well, quite frankly, the things that Paul lists in, in the end of First Thessalonians. That, that they sound like rules, they sound like regulations, they sound like demands, and, and, and they are not. But even if they were, John is saying that for those, those who love God, those who know Jesus Christ, those who follow Jesus Christ, these things are not burdensome. In other words, the, the impact that these things have on the believer is not, ugh, got to go be happy, got to go pray, yeah, i got more on my list. No, it doesn't impact us that way. He says they're not burdensome. And so that's what I pray this morning is, is that what, what Paul has written to us, I pray that you would receive them not as burdensome, but in, in many ways uh, as encouraging. Um, so with that said, uh, what do we do with this, uh, this rapid-fire, seemingly random series of, of exhortations? Um, I, I want to remind you that the church in Thessalonica was, was experiencing very difficult times. Uh, if you were with us during, as we went through the book of Acts, you know that, that Paul was run, literally run out of town. Um, that Jason was, uh, they had, had put a bond for Jason. And, and, and they continually were, 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 were suffering great persecution to the extent that he was so concerned that he, in fact, sent Silas and Timothy back to see how they were doing, henceforth, this first letter to them. So they are under a great deal of pressure. They are under very difficult times and, and facing an intense persecution. And, and I see here, again, I'm, I'm cautious in this, but I, I think I do see maybe some structure for your consideration. It is final instructions. These are just kind of some final instructions that Paul gives them regarding two things. Um, concerns regarding their personal faith and then concerns regarding their corporate reception of revelation. In other words, how they were receiving 
God's revelation. Concerns regarding their personal faith and then concerns regarding their corporate reception of revelation. So first, concerns regarding their personal faith. Verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, in fact, if you were to look uh, in verses 16 through 22, um, uh, they're all second-person plurals. Now, this is one of the limitations of modern English. Our second-person, singular and plural, both have the same form, which is namely you, unless you're from Texas. Texas does distinguish between singular you and plural you. Plural you is y'all. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of plural. Um, all of these are second person plurals. So I suppose, I suppose uh, one could make the argument that this is all ad- addressing them corporately, which is an interesting, which is an interesting thought. If you consider when he says rejoice always, he may be speaking to them as a congregation. That you as a congregation, I want you to always rejoice. As a congregation, as a, as a corporate entity, I want you to always pray. So, so there is an argument for that. All of these, by the way, all of these are second person plural. All of them are, with the exception of um, give thanks... Give thanks is what we call a, it's a middle passive, it's a middle passive voice, although it's called the deponent. It's only found in the middle voice. Middle voice is reflexive, uh, which means you act upon, the the subject acts upon himself. I know the grammar lesson now, your eyes are starting to roll back up in your head. But this is what all the others are what we call present active indicatives. Present tense is significant in Greek because it, it, it signifies Ongoing, continual action. So you could say, always pray. Continually pray without ceasing. Continually be giving thanks in all circumstances. Continually, and this is in the negative, stop allowing the, the quenching of the Spirit, so forth. So again, this, these are imperatives. These are not suggestions. These are not good ideas. These Paul is saying, do these things. Now, again, not in a way that's burdensome, but he's saying, in fact, these are imperatives. I tend to think, though, that although they're all corporate, there is a way to speak corporately to address a group, but be exhorting them as individuals. So, in other words, if, and this is where the, the, the second person plural comes in. If I were to say to you, I desire that, that for you to have a personal prayer time. Now that you, I'm addre- it's plural, I'm addressing you, but the, 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 the application of it is individual application. So we're not sure if, he, if Paul intended this to be a corporate application, namely when they gather together, or was he addressing the congregation and, and, and it, corporately, but then encouraging them individually to do these things. I, I did think it's a little bit of both. So what I, what I, what I really thought... Um, couldn't rely just on grammar, but um, I saw verses 16 through 18 more of a personal nature, addressing their personal faith. And the first thing he says is rejoice always. Um, 
always is an adverb. It means continually. I would have said incessantly. It's, it's not saying that every single minute of every single day you're supposed to be praying. But he's saying that prayer should be a continual, ongoing um, act, discipline of your life. Rejoicing should be an ongoing, regular act of your life. Now, here's what's interesting. He says rejoice always. I don't think what he's saying is that when bad things happen, because they they, bad things were happening to them. He's not, I don't think he's saying, I want you to rejoice because of those things. I think what he's saying is, in spite of your circumstances, I want you to always rejoice. Do you see the distinction? I'm, I don't want you to rejoice because of what you're experiencing, but in the midst of what you're experiencing, don't stop rejoicing. Um, I, I know I've mentioned a lot this, you know, Sky Jathani and this devotional, um, but but he had a recent devotional on prayer and singing that relates to this whole issue of rejoicing. Uh, I, uh, let, let me just read some of this. He says in Acts 16, we read of Paul and Silas, they were stripped and beaten with rods many times for proclaiming Jesus in the city of Philippi. Finally, they were thrown in jail and their feet put in stocks. I can only imagine the misery of their circumstances. Naked, beaten, chained, and imprisoned. That's what makes their response so odd. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I would understand if they were moaning and complaining to God or even crying out and pleading with God. But singing? I might add synonymously rejoicing? That strikes modern readers as strange because we associate singing or rejoicing with positivity with joyfulness, with celebration. What was there to celebrate about being beaten and incarcerated? And I would parenthetically add, I don't think that's what they were rejoicing about. I think that what they were rejoicing about was not that they were being beaten, but they were rejoicing in the fact that they serve a heavenly Father who loves them and is with them, always with them, and has saved them. And there were other reasons for them to rejoice. We usually think of singing and praying as two distinct acts. Prayer is what we do when we need something from God. And singing, i.e. rejoicing, is what we do when he grants it. One is for petition, the other is for praise. This clear distinction, however, is a recent concept common in consumeristic religion, but it's not found in the Bible. In many other cultures, including ancient Israel, singing is a means of lament and even complaint, not merely praise. He goes on to talk about the Psalms. He says the scene in Acts 16 reminds us that sometimes singing, like prayer, is a discipline. Singing, rejoicing, is not always in response to God's action, but in anticipation of it. Henry Nguyen has said it, a discipline is that the effort to create some space in which God can act. In their misery, Paul and Silas longed for and needed God's presence and intervention. They sang to shift their focus from their pain to their hope and to create space for God to act within them. And he concludes by saying, we all face midnights of the soul when our circumstances are dark and our hearts become cold toward God, when we do not feel like rejoicing and cannot form the words to pray. That is precisely when we ought to rejoice and allow the words of another, a songwriter or a psalmist, to guide our hearts towards communion with God. In the darkness, we begin with our voices and we allow our hearts to follow. I think that's exactly what Paul's getting at. Not that we necessarily rejoice for our circumstances or because of our circumstances, but in the midst of our circumstances, we rejoice. And we always rejoice. Number two, he says, pray without ceasing. 
or pray constantly. Not necessarily every second. But again, this present imperative, this present uh, incessantly, all the time, that prayer should just be second nature. And it's still, sadly, I don't believe it still is for me. My, oftentimes, sadly, my first response is panic, complaint, and then maybe prayer. I'm, I'm learning, I'm trying to learn that, that my first response is to pray. And to pray incessantly. Now, some people, some people go to uh, two opposites on this. Some people say, I don't really need to concentrate at prayer time. I talk to God all day long. So I don't really need to you know, have a time that's set apart where I get, you know, the, 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 the old saying was a prayer closet. Um, we, we don't want to come out of the closet. As Christians, we want to go into the closet to pray. So, but I think the Bible, by saying that we pray always, addresses both. That we always should be in a spirit of prayer. That when we're driving our car, we should be in a spirit of prayer instead of a, a spirit of... Thank you, should be in a spirit of prayer. But that doesn't mean that, that praying, praying constantly doesn't mean that there are, time, there, there are regular times where we need to get alone with the Lord for intensive, um, solitary prayer. It includes both. What, I, what I, one author called praying on the hoof, you know, as I'm going about my daily activities, but also carving out that time when I get alone with the Father and I pray. To pray constantly. Number one, Rejoice always. Number two, pray without ceasing. Without ceasing. Number three, give thanks in all circumstances. You've probably heard this a thousand times. He's not saying give thanks for the circumstances, but he's saying in your circumstances. In other words, in the midst of your circumstances, keep giving thanks. And there's still much, regardless of how bad it gets, there's still much that we need, that we can be, that we ought to be thankful for. In fact, he, it said of all of these, it's the one that he says, for this is the will of God for you. We saw that one other time in 1 Thessalonians 2. Remember? Anybody remember where that was? 4.3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the second time in this letter, he says, he says, this is God's will. You want to know God's will for you? Part of God's will for you is that you have a thankful heart. This is what we call God's will of desire. This is God's desire for us, that we have a, a grateful, thankful heart. Um, I, uh, one of the things I did, I, I just wrapped up my, uh, my school bus driving. And uh, one of the things I did, in the first two rows, I had uh, a bunch of middle school girls. Yakety yak yak. Uh, great girls, great girls. So it was a... It was a regular routine. Every single morning, I had one of the girls was my gum distributor. And she decided who was Wrigley worthy. And uh, it, they, they loved the juicy fruit. So I would hand her the pack of juicy fruit gum, and she'd hand out juicy fruit gum. They didn't have to pay for it. They didn't, I, it was just something I did every single morning. And uh, this last mor- one of the last mornings, uh, there was this little girl. God bless her. Um, she said, this gum is really dry. 
and say, you ingrate. Do you know I paid a buck twenty-five for that pack? But this kind of struck me. How oftentimes I do that with God, you know. This gum is dry. That's something that was freely bestowed upon her to take care of that breath. Uh, she complained about how dry it was. Now, obviously, I, it wasn't that big a deal. I didn't, you know, I didn't respond to anything. But it just, it, for some reason, it just hit me. You know, I'm off, we're off in that way. So we, we're not necessarily giving thanks for our circumstances, although in retrospect, oftentimes we do that, right? We see how God, in ret- later on down the road, we are thankful for our circumstances because we see how God used it maybe. But while we're in the midst of it, he just says, don't stop giving thanks for other things. Don't become an ingrate during difficult times. So he's concerned and he, and he gives talks about some concerns that he has for their personal faith. No, this is not high level exegesis, is it? I mean, look, I mean, what can you say? Rejoice always. You could preach that. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks. And also, this is easy. This is simple. This is straightforward. Pretty basic. But let me ask you, is it possible? I mean, is this really possible? I mean, let's, let's just be gut-level honest. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Come on, Paul. Is that really possible? And the answer is yes. It is. Because these commandments are not burdensome. They should encourage us to know that this is possible. It is possible to live a life Rejoicing always, of praying incessantly, of developing a thankful heart. It is possible. As we continue to grow and, and seek the Lord and do all the things that, he, he, that we know we need to be doing, it is possible. And he's concerned about their personal faith. Number two, he's concerned regarding their corporate reception of revelation. I say revelation, you'll understand in a minute. Verses 19 through 20 says, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And I think that what appears to be, again, rapid fire, random, separate exhortations, I think 19 through 22 all really are bound together by this first clause, do not quench the spirit. Some of our translations say stifle. Uh, what, do some of, what does your translation say? Anything different than quench? Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Yeah, th- this is a word. In fact, it's, it's, a, it's a word that Paul uses in, in, in the letter to the church in Ephesus when he's talking about the spiritual armor. He says, I want you to put on or hold up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the fiery arrows of the evil one. They're the same word, extinguish, put out the fire. Um, uh, the, the Holman had stifle. <laughs> and it reminded me of Archie Bunker. <laughs> Those of you that are under 50 uh, have no clue what that... Remember what we used to say? Stifle, Edith. What was he saying? Shut up. Have you ever noticed... Can you... 
there's a there was it is it good good uh, there's some uh, reruns. What's the station that has all the reruns? TV Land. Can, can, can you fathom uh, Archie Bunker in today's political climate? Don't quench the spirit. Now again, some look at this and they're saying. Don't put out the Spirit's fire and and talking about don't inhibit the use of spiritual gifts. And they get this from 2 Timothy, uh, when when Paul said to 2 Timothy, fan into flame, kind of the opposite of don't quench it, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. So they say that that what this, they typically read this as don't quench the Spirit, don't quench or stifle the expression, the many expressions of the Spirit in your congregation. And, and that may be true. That may be part of it. But I think in context, I think verse 20 and following give us what, how they were quenching, a specific way they were quenching the Spirit, the way they were stifling the Spirit, the way that they were withholding or preventing the expression of the Spirit. And that is they were despising prophecies. Um. They were not responding appropriately to God's revelation. Now, we, we need to talk. Man, I'm so glad Harvest isn't coming in. Uh, um, prophecies. Well, let's just do this. Turn to 1 Corinthians. And then we'll, we'll bear with me. I know that some of you are, are groaning in your latter end, um, as the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. 13, 8, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now, a great deal of argument is made here for the cessation of tongues based on the fact that the verb for tongues is, is cease, which uh, some argue is in the middle voice, which means tongues act upon themselves to cease. This middle voice is reflexive. The problem is the verb pao, um, which is we translate as cease, is only found in the middle voice. So you can't make a, a big argument based on, on the voice of it because it's only found in the middle voice. The, the, the point, though, is really... Uh, as for prophecies, they will pass away. And then verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Well, what does he mean? For prophesy was the way, before the, 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 the Scripture, the canon was finally completed. Although, the, the very moment, the very moment that letters were being written, the early church recognized Scripture for being Scripture. But they knew that it was, it was only, or Paul was telling them, now these prophecies are just temporary. They're just partial until the canon is completed. And then that, in fact, he says, um, for we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. I take, and there's a big controversy of this, but I take the perfect as being when God's final completed revelation is done, then there will be no more need for these prophecies. But it, they're, they're partial. They're temporary. So God in the early church Use certain men to prophesy, to give revelation from God, 
probably in most cases, using the very text and the letters that they had available to them, because we're going to see in a minute, they, they passed these letters around. They shared Paul's letters and Peter's letters. And so they would have those who would probably take those letters and, and do what we now we call preaching and prophesying. And he's concerned about them because what were they doing when those with the gift of prophecy were prophesying, when they were relating God's revelation, how were they treating it? What does it say? Go back to First Thessalonians. Do not despise prophecies. What do some of other translations say? Do not, do not treat them with contempt. Despise anything else. So you can do a, you can do a great word study just by, by comparing translations. Anything else? Contempt. What, 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 would, what, what do you think of when you think of they were despising prophecies? What, what is that? What is that? What, what image does that bring to you? What meaning does that bring to you? probably a lot of different things to look down on to disrespect to regard as worthless to regard as unimportant we're not really sure but we do know this they were not responding appropriately to ongoing revelation given by God through prophecies they were treating it with contempt. They were either ignoring it, they were not taking it seriously, they were falling asleep during the time that they prophesied. I'm not referring to anybody in this room, by the way. Everybody's going like this now. One of the, I think that in context, the way that they were quenching the spirit was not stifling the, the, the full exercise of spiritual gifts. But they were not responding appropriately to God's revelation. They were treating God's revelation as just ho-hum. And I think that we have to be cautious of that. that. That in a day when all of us have Bibles and we hear a sermon every Sunday and we have opportunities to read the Bible every, every day, that, that we don't treat it with contempt. We never get to the point in time where the Bible becomes ho-hum. And I can't tell you how many Christians I've talked to who in a moment of frankness and honesty say the Bible is boring. I, I can't understand it. It's boring. I, I'd rather read... I don't know who some of the authors are. I'd rather read something else. That's treating the script, the Bible with contempt. And they were doing it corporately. He's saying don't quench the Spirit. Don't stifle the Spirit. Don't inhibit the expression of God's revelation. On the other hand, don't, don't accept everything you hear either. Look at verse 21. But test everything. Remember last week we talked about the, or was it, I, I can't remember, a week or two ago, talked about the two errors. Uncritical. Remember I said when you, when you hear preaching of God's word, you need to avoid two errors. The one error was, was what? Uncritical acceptance. Where no matter what preacher I listen to, or whoever I'm, I'm listening to, I just accept it as gospel fact. No, we need to be Bereans. We need to say, check it out. What does the Scripture teach? So we need to avoid uncritical acceptance. And I think that's what, what, what maybe he's getting at here. The other extreme was what? Uncritical resistance. So they were in the uncritical resistance 
they were despising it. They were ignoring it. They were, they were treating it as unimportant. But on the other hand, he says in verse 21, Now, but I don't want you, I'm not saying that you just have an uncritical acceptance either. He said, I want you to test it. And this was a word that they used to test metals, to, 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 to determine the, uh, the authenticity and the, the, the purity of the metals. He said, I want you to test prophecy. If I, t- if I was saying one of the biggest, uh, what's the word? Help me, Carol. Uh, one of the biggest weaknesses in the church today is a lack of discernment. We, we went to Mardell's writing. Mardell's is a Bible book homeschool place. Because on their shelves are Joyce Meyer books and Jesus Calling books. And Christians are eating it up. Total lack of discernment. Absolute, complete lack of discernment. He's saying, test everything. Now, when you test it, he says two things. After you test it, if it's good, if it's orthodox if it's solid if it's if it's if it's from god what hold it fast but if it's not abstain from it from every form of evil you see i think what he's saying he's saying i want you to be very discerning when you hear god's word preached on the one hand you need to not be uncritically resistant. Don't treat it with contempt. As we say here, we don't want you to come with an open mind. We want you to come with an open Bible. So we don't, don't treat it with contempt. Don't have uncritical resistance. But on the other hand, don't have uncritical acceptance either. Test it. Is it consistent? And he's speaking to the group of people that he, he, he applauds in the book, when he wrote the book of Acts, the letter to him saying, you, you, you checked it out to see if these things were true. Uh, concern over the corporate reception of the word. Uh, finally, the benediction, verses 23 to 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives this benediction, and he's saying that your sanctification will certainly be brought to completion. He says the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely. And you will your whole spirit, soul, and body. Now, don't, don't read too much into that. Some people are what we call trichotomists. They, 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 they make this hard and fast distinction between your spirit and your soul, that your spirit is kind of who you really are, your soul is your emotions, how you act, and your body is your body. And there's no verses for that. I think, I think that, that functionally we are material and immaterial. We are a spirit, soul, we are spirit. We have a spirit-soul dimension. We have a physical dimension. He's just simply saying all of who we are will be brought to the very end completely sanctified. In fact, what does he call it? Blameless. So interesting. He just says, I want you to rejoice always. I want you to do all these things, which is part of our sanctification. But then he encourages them by saying, but the bottom line is it's not... ultimately up to you. God will, at the very end, at the coming of Jesus, we're going to talk about more, that more in a couple of weeks, but the second coming, you'll be found blameless because He is the one who's going to ultimately bring you to completion. That's encouraging. That's encouraging to us. So that should be encouraging to us. 
that as we stumble, as we fall, as, as we struggle in our Christian life, as we blow it over and over and over again, there's going to become a time when God's going to say, completed, and he's going to complete us, and our sanctification is going to be complete. And that won't come until he comes again, until his second coming. But he says, I will complete what I started. In fact, I, I just wrote down this. God will surely complete what he starts. Now, it doesn't mean that we live irresponsibly, because he's going to talk about that in Second Thessalonians. But what it does mean is that when, as we wrestle with our own personal sanctification and our responsibility in that, we need to take great comfort. There's going to come a day when God is going to complete that in our lives. He will, in fact, this adverb, he will surely do it. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Do what? Bring your sanctification to completion. What a glorious day that will be. And then finally, just some, I think this, in fact, this just some random concluding thoughts. He says, brothers, pray for us. Isn't that interesting? Now, if I were to say to you, brothers and sisters, brethren and sisterin, pray for me. What would you probably say? What do you want me to pray? He didn't tell them. I think they knew what to pray. They knew Paul well enough to know what to pray. We should know each other well enough to know what we pray. If someone were to say to me, one of you to say to me, pray for me, I should know. For the most part. Now, obviously, something may have just happened that I'm not aware of. But we should be so living in fellowship and community. By the way, there, there's just some basic things that we can always pray for each other. So he says prayer. I want you to pray for us. Number two is fellowship. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, this is, this is very common with Paul. And I think there's something more to this. In fact, I'm, I'm going to kind of study this one out. I think there's something more to greeting that was important for them as a church to greet one another than that we, that we take for granted. How do we greet each other? Oftentimes, hi, handshake. There's something, there seems to be something much more than that that he, over and over again, I counted in nearly every single one of his letters, some form of greet each other with a holy kiss or a kiss of love, he says. Now, I'm not suggesting that we start kissing each other. I don't think that's the application. But guys, I think there's something more to greeting one another than just, hey, how's it going? Good morning. Handshake. There's something more intimate going on with the way that we ought to greet one another. You see, they were probably separated during the week and the persecution and the difficulty and, and the struggles that they were having, that when they came together, they were genuinely glad to see each other. Greet one another. There's more than just say hello. Maybe we'll, we'll follow up on that sometime. Finally, the word. What does he say? I put you under oath to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, that's interesting. We get some fascinating insight into how the, how the, the biblical documents were spread. Um, if you turn to Colossians 4.16... At the end of Colossians, he says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see also that, uh, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So they, they were going to exchange letters. In fact, some say that, that what we now call the book of Ephesians may have, in fact, been that letter to Laodicea because in the inscription to Ephesians, many of our ancient manuscripts do not have to the church in Ephesus. Interesting speculation. But what they would do, 
Paul would write a letter, and they would share this between churches, and they and they would read it to the congregation. All this would be would have been read. He's saying, share the word, read this. What does he mean by the rest of the brothers? Does that mean to their church and other churches? We don't know, but share the word. And then finally, he says in First Thessalonians, and grace. He concludes with grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now these are not. These are not, I hope His grace will be with you. He's reminding that grace is with you. You're all, we're always under His grace. So here's what we're going to do. Verse 17 and 18. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. We're going to, I'm going to teach you a chorus. And we're going to leave with this chorus. Okay. Now, uh, I need to apologize for a couple things. First of all, I couldn't figure out the accent marks on the keyboard back here. So these are not accurate accent marks, Penny. So don't, don't want any letters, okay? Also, in Greek, sigma, which is S, there's two forms of sigma. One is when it's in the middle of a word. It looks like a little circle with a Q, Q But uh, a final sigma looks more like an S. I couldn't figure out how to get a final sigma on this. So I just did S on adiolatos, uh, the middle one. Now, I, I thought, how do I teach you Greek? So my wife helped me. Obviously, the, this, the top line is, that's verse 16 in Greek. Pentate kairete. The second line is verse 17. Adialetos prosukista. Okay? So, what I did was I got hooked on phonics, and I helped my wife. And let, let, me, let me sing this for you. And then, then we'll practice together, and then we'll conclude by singing this, okay? So, it, it's going to be a little different singing than it is when you, if you say, Pentate karete adialetos prosukista. Okay. Pentate karete pentate. No, let me start with uh, the chorus here. Adialetos prosukiste. Adialetos prosukiste. Pentate kairete, pentate kairete. Repeat it. Pentate kairete, pentate kairete. Adia letos prosukeste. Adia letos prosukeste. It's roughly rejoice in the Lord always. Does that, can I hear that? So it's pentate, that's the first word. Pentate. And then we separate the chi, chi e rete, pan pa antate chi rete. Isn't that helpful? Adia letos, that's the first word. Adia letos, prosukeste. All right, let's stand. This is free. By the way, this. Okay, let's start with the. Uh, so I can get in the right key. Let's start with uh, the, the chorus. Adia letos prosukeste. Repeat. Adia letos prosukeste. Pentate kairete. Pentate kairete. Pentate kairete, pentate kairete, adia letos prosukeste, 
Adialetos prosukeste. You want to try it in a round? No. You've, 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 learned, you've learned to sing Greek today. Rejoice always. Continually pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Would you please join hands?